I want to cut right to the chase uh, this evening and um, kind of get right to the point uh, of something that I have a certain concern and a burden for. It's something that I hope will happen in this new year, and, and I should back up and say it's not just my own personal concern and my own hope. I know it's a shared hope on the part of the leadership of this church, the pastors and the elders, that one of the things that happens this year is that we as a church body, that we progress in becoming and being what God has um, redeemed us for, what He has empowered us for, and that is to be agents of change in the world in which we live. Um, Jesus uses the analogy of yeast or leaven, that leaven is a whole lump. Each and every one of us um, works a career or does something somewhere in this city, somewhere in this county, somewhere in the state. And we are to be that yeast, those flecks of yeast that are then kind of thrown out there in the city and in the county and in the state um, to create a sense of change, to, to begin the leavening work of changing the dynamics of where God puts you. And I happen to believe firmly that where you live and what you're doing is a work of God's sovereign hand, um, that God puts you there for a purpose, and that purpose is to be a change instrument. Um, or, or to put it in a different metaphor, your life is a seed. Your Christianity is a seed, a seed of the kingdom. And wherever it's tossed, whatever place it lands, wherever you work, wherever you do your play or your recreation, it's there that you are to sprout and, 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 and to make a difference. But in order to do that, to make a difference and be a change agent, or to, for us as a church, to progress in being a church that changes the world in which we live, we have to be crystal clear on what our fundamental purpose is as believers. Purpose. Now most of us, if we've been in the church for a while, are intellectually aware of what that purpose is in general. But oftentimes, if you're like me, it's easy to push that central purpose of life to the back burner because of pressing things that, that, that get in the way. And so we kind of lose that central driving purpose of why we're here. Or others of us just get so overwhelmed by the currents of distraction and busyness and fear and anxiety that we simply lose the sense of, why am I here? And I know that happens in my life, and I have to stop and I have to say, wait a second, why am I here? Am I just here to do sermons? speak, drive to work, drive home. Why am I really here? And then to recenter myself and refocus myself on the simple purpose for which I exist. I have to do that all the time. You know, I have to set sticky notes and, and set reminders for myself and, and put it at the top of my to-do list so that I know that this is what my day is about. It's about this. And perhaps that's why God in His understanding of who we are told his people in Deuteronomy chapter 6 when he talked about their fundamental purpose of life he says write it on the doorpost of your of your of your home and write it on your gate and on the frontal lobes of your mind in other words do whatever you have to do to remind yourself of why you exist but I don't think I'm alone and as, as a person um, being easily forgetful as to why I exist and this particular message is designed to clarify or remind some of you just need reminders and also to proclaim what is the fundamental, what is the fundamental purpose for the Christian. And I think one of the best summaries of it, and there's lots of different ways of putting it, one of the great um, summaries is found here in the words of Paul. Chapter 1 of Philippians is a basic autobiography of his life. I mean, he tells about what's happening with him, his suffering, and what's happening with the gospel. Then he stops, and he contemplates his potential death, whether...
person? I am cutting in. I'd have to. I don't know if he can fix it. If he doesn't, we'll just fire this one up and we'll go with this one. Does that work for you? And now, where was I? Um, help me out here. Line. You know what you need? You need one of those guys, you know, like when you're doing plays that gives you your lines when you're not there. Oh. Um, fundamental purpose. Yeah, biography. So, Paul, it's autobiography. And in the middle of it, back on track. Thank you, April, so much. You're listening. I love people who listen. In the middle of this, he stops and contemplates life and death, and he says the words that many of us know. He, he says, to live, in other words, if I continue to live this life, to live is Christ. To live is Christ. To live is Christ. Most of us know those words. Most of us love those words. But I wonder how many of us stop to consider the profound scope of those words. Those four words, to live, he sums up what life is about. To live is Christ. When he says to live, he's not speaking of a piece of his life or a season of his life as if to preach is Christ or to go to church is Christ or feed the homeless is Christ. No, he says to live is Christ. In other words, the totality of his existence with all of its experiences, all of its tasks, all of its endeavors are all lived by this one universal Supreme principle of to live is Christ. Everything and at all times is guided by this fundamental purpose. To live is Christ. But then when he goes on to say to live is Christ, what he has in mind there in light of the, the verse right before it is clearly that his life would be all about, and I'm going to use a number of phrases here, revealing or lifting up or exalting or making known or uncovering or unveiling or giving people a sense or a taste of who Jesus is. And there in verse 21, he says, for me to live is Christ. But right before that, he says, verse 20, he says, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, you know, it's now as always, that's the totality, the comprehensive consummate purpose of his life that now as always Christ will be exalted in my body for him to say to live is Christ means the consummate comprehensive purpose of all life for him and I believe for all the believe, every believer who is truly following Jesus is just that everything you do everything you say every ounce of your life, every bedroom activity of your life is done for the overarching purpose, the primary purpose of seeing Jesus made known, made much of, that he's tasted by people, that he's, people sense that he's great in our lives. That's the overarching purpose. And that's true no matter what you do, what career you're in, whether it's private or public, or whether it's uh, in the corporate building or, or, or underneath the house doing plumbing whether you're a teacher teaching fifth grade or whether you're a student studying for a test, whether you're you know, fighting fires or whether you're writing tickets or, or enforcing the law, um, or you're getting your nails done or you're getting your tools sharpened, the fundamental purpose in all of those things, overarching, is Jesus first exalted, lifted up in my life. That means that all purposes are subordinate. Do we go to the workplace and to the job to make money to, to earn a living, to care for our children and so forth? Absolutely. That's one of the purposes for going to work. We can't live without a living or money. 
But that is, understand, believe her, my friends, a subordinate purpose, not the ultimate purpose. In other words, the mindset of the believer should be when going to work, even if it's in a cubicle or it's nailing boards on a wall, it's that Christ first in all things at all times in what I'm doing. That is to be the prevailing purpose each day as you go to work, whatever you do. The question I have, and I think most of us have, is, is what does it mean? How does that really work? How, for, for example, how about a housewife, a mom, full-time mom who takes care of four kids in the midst of her day? You know, the kids are screaming. There's scraped knees, knees that need uh, SpongeBob Band-Aids on them. And she's running this way and that way, going to baseball and back to soccer, to violin practice and back to gymnastics. How in the chaos of a housewife's life does she, in all of those things, exalt Jesus to live as Christ? How do you do that? Or, or, or how does a school teacher? a public school teacher who is not allowed to initiate a conversation about Jesus with her students, exalt Jesus. What does it mean for a teacher daily in class to live as Christ? What does it mean for the student who's going to Solano, who, who's studying for an economics exam? How do you study for an economics exam to the exaltation of Jesus? That, that, those are questions that get down to the nitty-gritty, the bolts, nuts and bolts of, of life. What does it mean in the practical daily experience of life to exalt Him in everything, to live as Christ? And I think a large part of the answer to that question is found in the fact that we can exalt Him and magnify Him in a myriad of diverse ways, not just one way. Many of us in the church who have been a part of the church for a long time have a rather narrow view as to what exalting Jesus means. We primarily think in verbal categories in terms of evangelism or preaching. That's what it means to exalt Jesus. Now to be sure, I don't think or believe that a person can come to the saving knowledge of Jesus without that verbal proclamation of the cross, what it is, what it's about, what it does for the sinner and the grace of God that it has to come to a verbal, verbal proclamation, which is why it's central to our mission statement. We want to spread a passion for Jesus, the highest purpose, and we do it through the ministry of the Word. That is the spoken Word. But we often then think, okay, that's the only way that I can exalt Jesus as a teacher, as a plumber, or getting my nails done, or getting my tools sharpened. And, and the fact is, the Bible says there are a myriad of ways in which we, in each activity of our life, can actually exalt Him. And that's primarily what I want to focus on in this, is that we figure out how to live as Christ without words, in particular, out in the world. I mean, that's just the scope of it, just so, just so we're clear. I would like to know how we, how you, given your specific career, given what you do during the week, how is it that you, apart from speaking exalts Jesus in everything you do out there where the flex of leaven are to go and make a change and where the seeds of the kingdom, your life is to go and make a change, where spirit meets flesh and light meets darkness. How is it that we as a church go out from here and we exalt Jesus in the daily things of life? That's the question. How is it that we can exalt Jesus in the daily things of life without words? Let me offer you a couple of ways that I think we can to live as Christ in every, in every circumstance, in everything we do. I'll give you three of them. 
Two of them are taken from Philippians, and a third one is taken from Colossians. The, the main focal point is to live as Christ, that verse 121. But then I'm going to gather three other things to it. And they've been chosen in large part because of the sense of need in our time and our culture. One of the ways that we magnify Jesus without using words is by enduring suffering with a joyful faith. By enduring suffering with a joyful faith. If you back up from verse 21 where he says that to live is Christ, back to verse 12, you'll read about what's going on in Paul's life. And it's about suffering. He says, Now I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the, the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. Because of my ch- most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. And he goes on to talk about the fact that, verse 18, yes, and I will continue to rejoice. That is, while Paul is writing this, he is in shackles and in chains. He is no longer allowed to go and freely walk on the streets. He's no longer allowed to, to attend the synagogue and talk about Jesus. He is limited. He is confined. He is cut off. He's suffering. And yet, in his suffering, he understands that what is happening to him, though it's keeping him from speaking freely, is working to make Christ known. That is, now word is going about that that this guy who stands for Jesus is in chains because of Jesus and for the word of Jesus, and word is traveling through the palaces and through the Praetorian Guard, that is, the, the, the Roman soldiers. They're learning about this through Paul's suffering. He goes on to say that his suffering is also inspiring his brothers and sisters to be more courageous and more bold. That's what suffering is doing. And because he's seeing that his suffering is exalting Jesus, both in the the lost world and even in the church, he rejoices. Now that's an amazing mindset to have about suffering. That when we encounter suffering, and in Paul's case it was direct persecution. But I think you can validly extend that to other types of of suffering. It could be physical. It could be disease. It could be um, loss. That when those things come, and they come in everybody's life, do we have the perspective to see that here is an opportunity for Jesus to be seen on the stage of my suffering? that he has. I mean, you know, when, when someone who doesn't believe in Jesus sees someone who does and wonders why they're still so confident and still a sense of spark and hope and joy despite the fact that they just got laid off, that says something. And when you see that sense of joyful faith despite the fact that you're going through the fires of chemotherapy and you're still able to even pray for your nurse, or encourage your doctor despite the fact you feel terrible. That's what causes people to stop and say, something's radically different inside that person. And I don't want to, in saying that, minimize the difficulty of going through those things, even with faith. Sometimes the joy of faith is a very wintry joy, but it's still there. There's still the hope and there's still the sparkle of joy in in faith. 
And when people see that, it becomes this foundation upon which they see something different. The suffering can serve as a platform, whatever form it comes in, for people to see real faith in a real Jesus. That makes a difference. In fact, as I study the Gospels and as I read church history, I think the suffering of God's people, and more importantly, their joyful faith in suffering, is one of the most persuasive testaments to the greatness of who Jesus is. And that oftentimes it's designed, I mean, to actually shift your perspective to to see that the suffering that has come into my life has been engineered so that God might be honored. Imagine that kind of perspective to see suffering not as an obstacle to lament, but as an opportunity to embrace and explore. When you read the Gospels, you see it over and over again that God uses that for a great purpose of making much of God. Um, You have John chapter 11 where Jesus deliberately allows his friend Lazarus to die. Suffering. Why? Explicitly stated in chapter 11 of John, he says, that the power of God might be seen. Or in chapter 9 of John, the question is asked of Jesus, why is this man who's been born blind, blind? Is it because he sinned or his parents sinned? And Jesus said he wasn't born blind for any other reason than this, that God's glory might be seen. So a man was born blind, that's suffering, for almost 40 years. What was the purpose of the suffering? So that one day, God might open the eyes of the blind and he might be seen and Jesus might be made much of. That's a perspective to have, especially in our times, to just realize that suffering is and can be, if we endure it with faith, it can be one of those things on which people see, without us even speaking words, that there's something different that Jesus lives in our lives. That's, that's one thing. There's a second one I'd give to you, a way of, of exalting Jesus without even using words, and it has to do with the simple conduct of our lives. Philippians 1, verse 27. Now, after this little brief autobiographical sketch, uh, section, Paul then now talks to the Philippians who are also suffering. And later he tells them, it's, it's granted to you not only to believe but to suffer. In other words, it's a call of God to do this for the sake of making much of, of, of Christ. Um, he says in verse 27, he says, whatever happens, that's what, in all circumstances, good, bad, indifferent, conduct yourselves, that is, walk in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. In other words, conduct the daily habits of your life, conduct your behavior, conduct your attitudes, conduct your speech in a manner worthy of both the life and the teachings of Jesus. That's what he calls them to do. Just whatever happens, live in a manner that's worthy of what Jesus taught you in the way that he lived. And it largely has to do with how we treat people, doesn't it? I mean, at the center of it is, hey, listen, this is what happens when Christ comes into your life is He pours out His love in you, both for God and for your neighbor. And so part of conducting your life, or the essence of conducting your life in a manner worthy of the gospel is, is learning to love your neighbor, which means loving them with honesty and loving them with integrity and loving them sacrificially and loving them compassionately, loving them without condition. Um, or in the words of Paul in Philippians a little bit later, treating their interests above your own. It's part of what it means to conduct your life in a manner worthy of the gospel. It's conform your life. 
Live out your life tangibly in your actions, in your words, in your attitudes the way Jesus would. And it'll make a difference. It will exalt Him. And I have, I have seen this both in my own life and in the life of people in our own congregation. That a person work at Starbucks making mochaccinos and lattes and by nature of the conduct of how they relate to their co-workers, their kindness to their customers, their work ethic, that they can actually reveal in some sense that they're Christians. This, they will know we are Christians by our love and I think they will know you're a Christian by the way you treat people. And I know that works because it happens. There's a group of people that come from Starbucks because one person simply lives out their life and their conduct according to the of Jesus. It is they different. I, I, the, 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 the massage therapist that comes to my mind who has had a tremendous impact. She's been that light in a dark place. She's been the place where spirit touches flesh. She goes and while she's working people over doing the shiatsu or um, Swedish, whatever it is, she loves them enough by listening to their woes and offers to pray for them. And that alone is being the fleck of leaven and, and, and loving people where you're at and whatever you do, that they sense Jesus is there. That's what it means to be the seed of the kingdom and, and to change the dynamics of people's lives by, by simply listening. I mean, that's being loving to your neighbor or helping them or praying for them. I mean, so th- th- and that's true of no matter what you do, what your occupation is. And you can be a, a, a teller at, or a clerk at AMPM. And by nature of the way you treat other employees and the way you treat your customers, you can either shine forth and exalt Jesus or you can dishonor Him. Whatever you do can be that way. If it's answering phones, you, you can conduct your life and your conversations and your attitudes and tones on the phone in a way that exalts Him and doesn't dishonor Him. If you're a teacher teaching fifth grade and you're not allowed in the public school system to initiate a conversation about Jesus, well, you certainly can conduct your life in a manner worthy of Jesus and and go above and beyond and show acts of special kindness to underprivileged kids. You can You can grade their papers carefully and impartially, or you get into the teaching lounge and you sense that river of gossip going, you can restrain yourself and there you will be leaven in the dough. And there you will be a seed of the kingdom in the midst of darkness. And there you will start to see change and you will exalt Him. It doesn't make a difference what you do. You can be a real estate agent selling... And if you discern that your sale is going to be to the detriment of your client, you can forego or forfeit the sale for the sake of the person. Now isn't that an interesting idea? To somehow say to the world that you are more important than the sale of my product. I think that honors the Lord because you trust Him and it says to the world there's something bigger and more important than the bottom line. That's what it means to be a person who lives with Jesus first and foremost in mind. Um, Jesus first in all things at all times. 
you know, I have this, this man that's a special friend who is a coach to my son. And you know, I never heard him on the field that I can remember say the name Jesus, but he definitely knows Jesus. And you can see Jesus in the way that he loves his little players. Because he cares more about the growth of those little baseball players than he does about winning the game. Now, don't get me wrong. He wants to win the game, but that's not the most important thing. And I see Jesus written all over that. So you see, no matter where you go, you, you, you coach baseball, do it. But do it with Christ first and foremost in mind. That somehow, Lord Jesus, in the way that I talk to these kids and in the goals that I set for them, will you please... Show their parents and these kids something different that's different than the world, which is all about winning the game or making the money. You want to live each day to the exaltation of Jesus and, and, and engage that fundamental purpose of life, which is to live is Christ? Conduct your life in a manner worthy of the Gospel. It's a rather simple approach, and you can do it everywhere and in whatever you do. And one final way that I think that you can magnify Jesus without words, and I hope you do get to use words, but one of the ways that you can magnify Christ without words is found in Colossians chapter, chapter 3. In summary, it's to give your absolute best at whatever God has for you to do. Verses 23 and 24 of chapter 3. This is what Paul says. Now let me back up and tell you the context. You look at verse 22. He's giving instructions to slaves. Obey your earthly masters in everything and do it not only when their eye is on you to win their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. He's talking about relationships of employer to employee, master to slave. And this is his, his, his advice to them. He says, whatever you do, Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. You get his advice to, to, to those followers of Jesus that are out in the work world, out as the employee of the employer or the slave to the master. His advice to them, his instruction is you give everything you have to whatever is placed in your hands. You give it your absolute best. And the reason why is because he says ultimately you're not working for the CEOs of Starbucks or you're not working for your foreman or you're not working for the business owner or even your immediate advisor. He says in the end, no matter what your career is, no matter what you're doing, a mechanic or a white collar worker, you're working for one. And that is Christ. That's clearly what he says. He's not saying as though Jesus is your foreman, but rather he says from the Lord, it is the Lord Jesus Christ you are serving. Now, imagine how uh, revolutionary it would be for every Christian who calls himself a Christian follower of Jesus to say, I am going to whatever I do, whatever my activity, whether I'm working at AM, PM, or I'm working at Starbucks, I am going to give 100% to my time while I'm there. Make every effort, or as Paul says, put your whole heart into it because I'm doing it for him, not for the corporation. How different it you're a, you're a painter of a house. Instead of just thinking of it as Mr. Smith's house or Mr. Jones' house that you might not care about, you think, okay, I'm going to approach this house 
and I'm going to paint this house as if Jesus lives here. Now, do you think if you were to paint Jesus' house, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Creator and Redeemer of all things, do you think that you would go half-hearted, do low-quality, cut corners so that you could save a few bucks? I'll tell you, I wouldn't want to paint his house that way and then have him come inspect it. Would you? No, I, I would not be, I'd be making sure it was top quality paint. I did the best I could do, as many coats as I could do. I do all of the prep work as best as I could and paint it so that he in the end would be pleased with my sacrifice. Imagine if every Christian, no matter where they went and what they did, they did it with all their might by the grace of God so that Jesus might be seen. And I'll tell you, if you work that way, people will notice. Talked, talked enough to enough business owners in our community to know that good workers are hard to come by. And the sad thing is, is that I've heard people, both Christian and non-Christian, say to me that I would never hire a Christian to do work because they do shoddy work and they don't finish it on time or whatever. I know people who will not call and add in, in, in the phone book because it has a fish there. And my heart just sinks when that happens and I, when I hear things like that. And it's not all the time. It's just a few occasions that I've heard it because it's a fundamental denial of our purpose in life. That in everything Jesus is exalted, including the way that I do reports and the way that I count um, numbers and the way that I treat people, the way I write tickets or the way that I fight fires, it all reflects Him. It would make a huge difference if a believer was to actually practice what Paul here says. It would exalt Jesus again without you having to use words. I can tell you from personal experience and also the experience of Dan Overby, every job that I've ever seen him work outside of a church environment, secular, and I've seen it in my own life, every time if I simply worked hard and was kind to people, inevitably almost every person that I worked with would find out that I was a believer and they would want to know why I believe what I believe. And so, and then God has now just opened a golden opportunity for you then to speak forth the life-saving words of the gospel. And I'm telling you, that's in my thinking what our culture needs. They need to see the gospel lived for them to open their ears to hear the gospel spoken. It's to see people who actually follow Jesus in the way that they work, in the way that they conduct their lives, in the way that they carry their faith when they're suffering. If we as God's people want to be that fleck of leaven that goes into the cubicle or the office building or the clinic and, and make a difference, just one, start living your life according to the Gospel, the teaching and the example of Jesus. Give your whole heart by the grace of God to what He's given you to do. Don't give in to the sin of laziness. Do it for the sake of Christ. And when God brings those, those times of suffering to your life, you trust Him in those times. And you remain rejoicing even though you might be in sorrow and people are going to see something different. And that is what it means to exalt Jesus out in the world even without words. And then you pray that God would give you opportunity to use words and testify to the amazing what Jesus in our place and what He offers. That's what it means to be leaven. And, and my hope is that, you know, here 2009 is now unfolding before us. It's unfolding before us. We're already at what, day 10? If each one of us, and I should say that it's unfolding before us and it's ripe with opportunity and rich with potential. 
If we would but each morning wake up before we even take the sip of coffee and say, oh Lord God, would you please take me as just a little tiny piece of yeast and throw it out in the way I'm going to go today and will you leaven in some small way someone's life by me by the way I conduct myself and how I work? Will you change my work environment? Will you use me in some small way to be the seed of the gospel out in the world where spirit needs to touch flesh and light needs to touch darkness and salt needs to touch that tasteless and bland world that's out there? Will you please? And then remind yourself of your fundamental purpose. I'm telling you, it has to be so. I don't care how you do it. If you write three by five cards, tape it to your steering wheel saying Jesus first in all things in all times. Or if you have to put a reminder in your little calendar in your computer to go bling, Jesus is first. Or you have to tattoo it on your arm. I don't care. This is why I exist. To live as Christ. End. Period. To live is Christ. I think if we made progress in that this year, I think it would be an amazing year with amazing change and profound fruit in our lives. And that's what I crave, to see Christ lifted up and exalted in God's people's lives, not just in here when we worship, but out there where we live, we uh, work and breathe. So I'd like to ask you as we come to the communion table, if you would come in that spirit. Come one just refocusing yourself on this truth to live is Christ and asking the Lord will you help me to do that as I as I leave this place as I engage in work this week every day of the week may you keep this central in my heart and remember as you take that bread which is a symbol of Jesus body which was brutally and violently killed and the blood or the the juice which is a, a symbol of his blood which was violently shed all for us remember why he died, why he lived, and why we're here. So that he might have first place in everything at all times in our lives. John's going to start a worship song here in a second and after I pray. And then um, if you are a follower of Jesus and you trust in him, you trust in his cross for you, then uh, I invite you to come up. We have one table tonight, which is, which is pretty cool because we all can take a, partake of the same one table. Come up and break off a small piece of the cracker and dip it in the juice and you can take it back to the uh, seat with you. You can pray with your family on the stairs if you want. It's kind of a free form. We want you to worship God together. Pray with Him, uh, to Him together and, and partake of the, the body and the, and the blood of Christ. And Dan Overby and I, um, Pastor Dan, We'll be off to the sides if you're struggling with physical difficulties. The Bible does say we are supposed to pray that God would heal, and so we'd like to pray for you if you're struggling physically with something. Um, again, don't be afraid or don't be embarrassed. Just come. We'd love to just pray for you and pray for God's grace to abound in your life. Let's pray and then let's come. Father in heaven, we ask that you would just time, that you would flood this time with your spirit and your truth. Pray that hearts would be sensitive to the leading of your spirit and um, the ne necessary changes that need to take place. We pray that as we partake of these elements that symbolize something so monumentally profound and life-changing, universe-changing, that you would minister to us and, and change us and encourage us and remind us why he died, why he lived, and why we're here. In Jesus' name, amen.